The scripture reading for tonight is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was, manifest, was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, for those of you who are new and joining us for the first time this evening, uh, welcome. Uh, we're really glad that you're with us, and something that we say every week is, regardless of what your spiritual background is, whether you're just checking out who Jesus is, or if you've been coming to church for a really long time, uh, we're really glad that you're with us, and we hope you feel welcome. Uh, we also know that even this late in the fall, people are still transitioning in and out of the city. If you're new to the city, sometimes that can be pretty disorienting as you might be the only one that you know here. And so know that we, we would love to help you find a home here, uh, be it through this church body or just helping you getting plugged into the Clarendon Courthouse, Arlington area as a whole. And uh, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here uh, for those of you who I haven't gotten a chance to meet. And so today marks the beginning of a new series. We're going to be in First John. First John uh, for for the the winter. And as as Nate put it last week, so we went through Ecclesiastes over the summer. Ecclesiastes essentially takes everything that you hold dear out of your hands and smashes it on the ground. And so what our hope is uh, as a pastoral team here as we go through First John is for it to be a book that that really encourages you. After we went through a very necessary but, but hard-hitting book like Ecclesiastes. And so First John, as we head into it, uh, it's always important to know who wrote a letter that, that we're reading in the scriptures. So does anybody want to guess who wrote the letter of First John? Peter. Wrong. <laughs> and you're a leader here, Abby. <laughs> who wrote First John? Yes, thank you. <laughs> it's not a trick question. So, yeah, so it is John. By the way, um, Nate said he would give a $500 gift card to anybody who answered that question correctly, so he's not here, so I'm going to volunteer that on, on his behalf. Yeah, so this is written by John. Uh, the, the John who, who walked with Jesus, spoke with Jesus, saw Jesus, the, the, the same John who, who wrote the Gospel of John. And the reason why he's writing this letter is John is late into his life, and He's writing a group of churches, probably around the region of Ephesus, and he's writing these churches because men and women in the church are starting to become disoriented because there's a group of people who left these churches, and they, so they were members in the church, they left, and they've now come back, and they're telling these churches contradictory things about Jesus. So they're essentially undermining their confidence in who Jesus is. And so what John does here is he writes them to give them assurance. Uh, the, the nice thing about John is he tells you exactly why he's writing. So at the end of this book, in 1 John 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John wrote the Gospel of John so that you know how to have eternal life. And here he writes, so how, how, do, you, how do you know that you have eternal life? So it's so a very crucial difference there. And so in this letter of assurance that he's giving, this is really crucial for, for all three types of people that are going to be in a church at a given time. So for those of you who might be checking Jesus out, you're here maybe because somebody brought you. 
Um, maybe you're not even interested in Jesus, uh, but at least if you're here and you don't know Christ, you'll see in a, in a very um, crystallized fashion, what, how, how can you know God? How can you know that you can have eternal life? The, the second group of people is in any church, even a church that's, that is this small, um, there, there's often at least a few people in the church at any given moment who are confident that they are Christians, but you're actually not. So you, so you you think you know God, you think you have eternal life, but you actually don't. And so one, one of John's aims here is to lovingly wake any of you up who think, maybe because you've just been in the church for a really long time, or maybe you know a lot more doctrine than other church members, and so you, you may have a, a false assurance that, that you know the, the real God. So John is going to lovingly wake anybody up who has, who has false assurance. And then finally, he's going to give people who are Christians and believe they're Christians confidence. And this, this is really crucial. Um, it, it always has been. It was for John, but it is especially in, in our cultural moment today because the landscape of belief has, has shifted a lot in, in the West over the past 50 to 100 years. So even 50 to 100 years ago, um, not, even, not most people in society were, were Christians probably, but it was more or less agreed upon that, that if you were a Christian— it was an acceptable option for, for life. Uh, oftentimes you were, you were respected if you were a Christian, even by people who, who weren't believers. But today things have shifted a lot. And, and so one, um, it can be difficult for believers because now through technology and a globalized society, and you, just, you have a lot of friends and family and neighbors who believe very different things than you do, and, and they are just as sure as you are that, that their view of ultimate reality is, is correct. So that can be disorienting as a Christian when you, when you meet other people who, who are just as sure about their view is true. And then, so, so it's easy to think, am, am, I the, am I the crazy one? You know, I, I believe that a human being, he, he said he was God and then he raised from the dead. Really? I, I, I believe in, a, in an invisible God, convenient that he's invisible, right? Really? Like, am I the crazy one? It, it's easy to begin to feel, am I... Am I really confident that, that, I, that I've bet on the right horse for, for my entire life? And so um, our, our, our prayer, my prayer for you all as we head into this fall and winter is that, that you can know and have 100% assurance that you have bet on the right horse, Jesus Christ, for, for eternal life. And so John begins this letter by talking about Jesus. When he says the word of life there at the end of verse 1, he's talking about Jesus. And so what he does at the start of this letter on assurance is... He, he, in this introduction, what he is getting at is why Jesus came. So he says, before even get, getting into how do you know that you can have eternal life, let's talk about why Jesus came. And there are many reasons he gives in this little intro, but we're going to highlight the, the three main reasons that he gives for, for why Jesus came. So first, we're going to see that Jesus came to make your joy complete. Second, John will show us that Jesus came so that you will have fellowship with God. And three, Jesus came so that you will know who God is. So first, Jesus came so that you will have complete joy. Second, Jesus came so that you will have fellowship with God. And then third, he came so that you will know who God is. Okay, so number one, he, he came to, to make your joy complete. So John's train of logic here, he, he begins by saying, Jesus Christ, his eternal life himself, he, he came to earth. We, we really saw him. We, we heard him. We touched him. And I'm proclaiming these things to you so that if you trust in him, you have fellowship with God. And if you have fellowship with God, what? In verse 4, he says, I'm writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
So in other words, if you, if you trust Christ, you have fellowship with God, and then your joy will be complete. So, so he starts off right off the bat by saying complete joy is possible. Now, if you're, if you're sitting there waiting for Steve or John to, to get to the point, then either you're asleep or, or you're not listening. Because th- this is a startling statement. It's a thunderous statement. Could complete joy is possible. Why is that such a thunderous statement? Well, when you, when you start off life, the, now I'm sensitive to the fact that, that some of you may not have had the, the, the best childhood, so I'm sensitive that, to that fact. But m- many people, particularly in the West, start off life believing that joy is inevitable. Joy is inevitable. Because when, when you're young, even when you're the age of most of us in here, so your 20s or 30s, I mean, the whole world is ahead of you. So you still have friends to make and, and distant countries to visit and somebody to marry and, and a home to move into and, and, a, and, a, and a job to get and kids to have. And, and all the, the, the Disney movies and, and Pixar films that you watch growing up, what they do is, is they inject into your bloodstream the idea that, that if you are just true to yourself, Meaning, if you, just, if you follow whatever your desires are saying in the moment, sure, sure, life is going to be difficult. Yes, there's going to be obstacles and hardships. But if you stay true to yourself, th- then you will have joy. But the more you walk along life, you realize life isn't really like a Disney movie. Is it? Is life like a Disney film? Does Sleeping Beauty always wake up? Does the frog always turn into the prince? Does Cinderella always make it to the ball? In the end, does everybody get to marry the person they want to marry? In the end, does everybody who lost somebody they loved, they, they find out they're actually alive? Or is life more like Hamlet? Everybody distressed and dying in the final scene. See, you ask the people who have lived long enough, and Ask the people, especially those who are most the, most, the most accomplished, the most successful, and you ask them, is complete joy possible? And they will tell you, no way. No way. They'll say something to the effect of, yes, of course, spikes of happiness is possible. Spikes of pleasure is possible. But often, oftentimes, it's the, the intelligentsia who, who scoff on those who pursue joy. Because they'll say it's something like trying to hold on to, to petals that bloom in the spring. They're inevitably going to fade away. So why are you trying to hold on to joy? That, 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 that's foolishness. You ask anybody who's, who's seen a, a, enough of life, and they'll tell you life's more like Hamlet than a Disney film. And, and so what you have are, there, there are three kinds of people in the world. You have those who think joy is inevitable. And if this is you, then you're either very naive or you're just so busy looking at your phone and caught up in your pursuits that you don't actually slow down to look at life for what it is. The second group of people are people that believe joy is impossible. You've seen just too much of life to know that, that joy, a wellspring of delight at the center of your being that's not subject to circumstances, it, it's not possible. And then there's a third group of people, and these are the people like John. And what John is saying is joy is not inevitable, it doesn't come to everybody, but it's also not impossible. Complete joy is possible, and it only comes by meeting and knowing this person, Jesus Christ, that I saw. 
and you give your life to him and you will have a wellspring of joy at the center of your being that never fades and is not subject to circumstances. Complete joy is possible. And he's going to show you throughout this letter how, how to get that joy that's complete. And so the, the solemn warning that I want to give you all as we head in, into John and, and we, we get joy um, by our relationship w- with Jesus Christ is what your, what your temptation is going to be as, as, as we walk through John is you're going to see the things that John lays out and you're going to say either that's too simple or that's illogical. So because, we, you know, especially in our climate, if something isn't extraordinary, it can't be the right answer to something. John is going to give you very ordinary, simple answers to joy. And some of it will seem illogical because the way of Jesus is always upside down to the way the world works. So please do not be a fool and run right by these things because you think you're smarter than the Apostle John. Okay, so first, complete joy is possible startling. So that's the first reason why Jesus came. The second is so that you will have fellowship with God. Jesus came so that you will have fellowship with God. So here in in, in verse 3, he says, that which we've seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. So he's saying that, that which we've seen and heard, he's talking about Jesus, we proclaim to you so the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is. It we, we do these things so that you will have fellowship with the Father. So, so what he's saying here is that the reason Jesus did everything he did and the reason why I'm proclaiming to you these things is not just so that you will believe in Jesus Christ in an abstract sense, but that, that you will have fellowship or, or deep intimacy w- with God. Jesus says something very similar to this effect in John 17, one of his final prayers. Uh, he's praying and he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you. So you hear what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, he's not saying eternal life is a byproduct of knowing God. Eternal life isn't, um, isn't a consequence of knowing God. No, eternal life is knowing God itself. So what Jesus is saying and what, what John is saying here is, you, you can go to church every single week. You can teach the Bible to other people. You can argue about God and, and, and the truth of Jesus to other people, but not actually know God yourself. Why? Well, because there, there's a difference between intellectual knowing and personal knowing, isn't there? So, so you, can know, you can know about your friend, and then you can actually know your friend. And what John is driving home here is he's saying, my, my fear is that you, you're sitting here and you know God in the same way that you know LeBron James. I don't think any of you in here know LeBron James personally. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But so you, you, can, you can know about LeBron James, right? But then there's, there's a difference between knowing about him and actually knowing him, being in his family, living with him, knowing his likes, dislikes, fears, what his joys are. So John's saying that that difference, that intellectual knowing versus personal knowing with God, is, is the difference between life and death itself. If you don't know God in, in the personal intimate, intimate sense, then, then you don't have eternal life. 
And, and so here, here's both a, a challenge and an encouragement to you all in this idea of, of, of fellowship with God. The, the challenge is, if, 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 you don't, if you don't know God in, in, in this way, deep intimacy with him, in the same way you would with a best friend or a love partner, if, if you don't know God in this way, if, if you don't ever sense his presence bearing down on your heart, if, if you never have the des- desire to, to, to feel a palpable sense of his presence, to be changed by him in his word, in prayer, in church, then, then what is happening is if you don't even thirst for this or, or ever have it is you are defeating the very aim and purpose of why Jesus did everything that he did. Because the reason that Jesus emptied himself of his glory and, and came to earth as a human to live and die and rise again on your behalf wasn't so that you would believe in him in just an abstract sense. Yes, Jesus died for my sins. I got that. No, he, he did it so that, that you, will, you will know God in just as real of a way, if, if not more, than, than your closest relationship on earth. So, so do, do you know him? Do you, do you at least long to know him in, in that way? When you, when you come to church, is it just say, okay, well, I got to go to church because it's, it's the thing that I do. Um, and maybe you're secretly happy on, on the weekends that you're out of town because, oh, darn it, I have to miss church service. Or, or before you come to church, do, do, you, do you pray beforehand? Maybe it's something like, God, I don't even want to go to church today, but please instill in me a desire to want to go to, to know you better today, to meet you in singing, to hear from your word preached, to meet you at the Lord's table. Do you go to church to know God, or is it just something that, that you do? So that's, that's the challenge. If you aren't longing for this type of, of real intimacy, you are defeating the very reason Jesus did what he did. But, but here's the encouragement with this. If you make a point regularly to, to meet God genuinely, earnestly, fervently, in, in prayer, actually listening to his word and obeying it, God will not play peekaboo with you. God, God will meet you in, in a very real way. Now, I'm, I have to be careful here because, yes, you certainly go through seasons, and, and there can be months, maybe even years, where you're in the Word, you're praying, you're going to church, and you, and you don't feel much. So, yes, there is an objective reality that you need to, to adhere to, so we have to be a little too careful about talking about feelings, but... Scripture does talk a lot about experiencing God using sensory language. So that is something that happens when you know God in the way that John's talking about, fellowship with God. So for example, Psalm 34, we read it in the call to worship today, taste and see that the Lord is good. There, 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 there are moments where, you know, doing it regularly, day after day after day, there, there will be moments where you feel something like the pressure of his love coming down on your being where maybe you read a verse that you've read a thousand times before, but it causes your heart to catch on fire in a way that it never did before. You find that there are dark little apartments in your being that are all of a sudden shed abroad with the light of his radiant presence. So much so that the experience of it is more delightful than the richest of foods. This, this is available to you. God, God promises in his word. So do you, have you ever experienced anything like that? Do, do you long to experience anything like that? God will meet you in that way. And, and what, what's incredible about it is because it is a personal knowing relationship, think about if a 
if you are loved by a neighbor or a coworker, for example, they, they, they really love you in a particular moment. That, that can change you for a day. If, if you are loved by a best friend or, or a spouse, they are there for you through thick and thin, even when, when you fail them miserably. You can be changed by the love of a spouse or, or a best friend for, for a year or even a, a lifetime. But to be loved by the consuming fire himself, the very love that made the world, the very love that gave himself for you, gave his entire life for you, that will change you absolutely for a lifetime and definitely for an eternity. Do you know him? Or do you just know about him? That's why Jesus came, so that you would know him. And we'll see more about that as we walk through John. So first, Jesus came to, to make your joy complete. Amazing. Second, he came to give you fellowship with God. And then third, he came to show you who God is. <laughs> so it's, it's earth-shattering that John starts his letter on assurance by in, in those first uh, two to three verses, talking about Jesus is God himself. We came to earth. We saw him, touched him, heard him. Like, so th- this, is what I, this is what I realized as I was praying over this and, and, and studying this this week. And this, this is so crucial. The, the reason, I'm pretty sure, I'd be willing to bet a lot on it, the, the, the reason that you don't have more joy at the center of your being the, the more re- the the reason why you don't have real fellowship with God in the way that John's talking about the, the reason why you don't thirst for it more the reason why you don't want to obey God in very ordinary things is because you don't really know what God is like who is God don't talk about this very much what's God like is because it, it, it's an abstraction isn't it and God God's invisible so what, what does he really look like? This, this is incredibly frustrating, is it not? Because you, you don't have this problem with, with any other love relationship. Be it with, with your dear, dear friends, your family, a spouse, if you have one. In any of those love relationships, you can see them, you can touch them, you, you can see their face as they respond to particular things, as you're going through things together. But, but that's not the case with God. And there, there are many times where I, I've been speaking with, with very well-meaning, genuine skeptics, and one of the most common things they, they tell me is they say something to the effect of, Steve, you're, you're asking me to believe in an, in an invisible God. Like, I, like, I'm sorry, but I just, I can't have that type of faith that you do to just believe in this invisible God. Or, or, or sitting with, with, with many believers who are, who are in immense pain and suffering, and they, they often get to this point where it's just, if, you know, if I, if I could just see God, if I could touch him, then, then I wouldn't doubt so much. I, I could trust him more. I could know that he, that he actually cared about me, but, but I can't see him. What does God look like? Who, who is he really? And to answer this question, I want to take you back about 70 years or so to a World War II battlefield. And there's a story um, that, that a chaplain told about his time uh, 
ministering to soldiers on, on, the, on the battlefields of World War II. And what happened is, is there was this dying soldier on one of the fields. Uh, he, he was mortally wounded, and this chaplain came up to him to, to put him on the stretcher. And as this young man was, was dying, in, in his final breath, he, he grabs the chaplain, and, and he looks him in the eye, and he says, Padre, Father, what is God like? Is God like Jesus? In other words, he was asking, when I, after I die and then open my eyes, who's going to be in front of me? That's a, a very important question. Not just for when you're dying, but even how you live your life right now. What is God like? And what John is, is telling you here is when we, when, we, when we think about what God is like, we, we go about it terribly wrong. So, so what are some ways you can answer that question? What's God like? Well, you can look within. I did that earlier this week, and that terrified me. I, I hope God is not like me. And I love you guys, but I also hope that God is not like you. <laughs> so no, you don't want to look inside. You can, you can look at nature. People do that a lot, right, to, to describe God. So you can look at the, the beauty of nature. You can look at the Grand Canyon. You can look at the Swiss Alps. You can look at a, a mother duck uh, helping her ducklings along. Beautiful things like that in, in nature. But nature is also filled with terrible things like tsunamis that wipe out hundreds of thousands of children. Is God like that? What about looking out into humanity? So there's, 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 there's profound acts of, of compassion and tender love uh, in, throughout human history. There's also unimaginable cruelty and abuse. Is God like that? The problem with, with each of these approaches, first of all, you're, you're starting very human-centered, so you're, you're skewed from the get-go. But two, none of these answer, all these answers are terrifying, at, at best unsettling. So to answer this question, uh, what I want to do is share with you something I heard from my friend. His name's Jono. He's, he's a professor at Cambridge. And he was talking about this, and he was talking about the, the story of the soldier, and uh, he was also walking through this question of what is God like, and, and he shared this story, and this is when it came together for him. So he has a, a wife and a daughter, and his wife was doing bedtime with, his, with their three-year-old little girl. And as they're doing bedtime with their little girl, their little three-year-old girl looks up at, at her mother, and she, she asks her mom, Mommy, what does God look like? She's asking the, the same question that this dying soldier was asking. And what this mother did was, she, she could have said, well, God's invisible. And she wouldn't have been wrong. I mean, John himself says in, in John 1, 18, no one has seen God. She could have brought up, you know, a number of different little children's Christian books that she had and pulled out a picture, maybe like an old man up in the clouds. Oh, God looks something like that. But that's not what she did. When her daughter asked, Mommy, what does God look like? This is what she did. She picked up the, the children's storybook Bible uh, that we have that we use for, for our children's ministry. And she opened it up, and all she did was she read this to her little girl. 
On a dark night in Gethsemane, Jesus walked alone into the blackness. He needed to talk to his heavenly Father. He knew it was time to die. Jesus was going to take the punishment for all the wrong things anybody had ever done or will do. Papa, Father, Jesus cried as he fell to the ground. Is there any other way to get your children back, to heal their hearts and get rid of the poison? But Jesus knew there was no other way. All the poison of sin was going to have to go into his own heart. God was going to have to blame his son for everything that had gone wrong. It would crush Jesus. But even more horrible, Jesus knew that because people ran away from God, he was going to have to take the punishment for that too. He was going to have to lose his father, and that, Jesus knew, would tear his heart in two. Violent sobs shook Jesus' whole body. And then Jesus was quiet like a lamb and said, I trust you, Papa. Whatever you say, I will do. And then a few pages later, so they walked up a hill outside the city. Jesus carried the cross on his back. Jesus had never done anything wrong, but they were going to kill him the way criminals were killed. They nailed Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them, gasped Jesus. They don't understand what they're doing. People shouted, if you really were the son of God, climb down off that cross. And they were right. Jesus could have said a word and made it all stop, just like he healed that little girl and stilled the storm and fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus there. It was love. Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Tears rolled down the face of the one who came to wipe away every tear from every eye. The earth trembled, the mountain shook, and it seemed creation itself would tear apart. The full force of God's anger at sin came down on his own son instead of his people. Then Jesus cried out in a loud voice, It is finished. And with a great sigh, he let himself die. And the mother put the book down, and she just looked at her girl, and she said, that's what God looks like. That's, that's exactly what John is, is, is saying here. The answer to the question, what does God look like, is the life, the death, and the life again of Jesus Christ. Testified to you by the Holy Spirit working through the apostles and recorded on the pages of Scripture for the entire world to read. It's as if the the life of Jesus recorded in the Gospels is God's autobiography written for all of us to see exactly what he's like. And this means some wondrous things. You, you no longer have to guess what God thinks about you or says to you when you're in the middle of the chaos and pain of day-to-day -day life. You don't have to wonder, what does God think about me when you remember that that shameful thing that maybe happened to you or that, that you did and hide it again, or when you feel like a fraud at work. You no longer have to wonder, does God really care about me when, when you're silently suffering through something that barely anybody else knows what you're going through?
you don't have to wonder, is God more powerful than this storm that's besetting me as you lay awake at night in your bed with anxious thoughts plaguing your mind? And you don't have to wonder, can, can God really use somebody like me, a, a failure? <laughs> there are so many more people better equipped than me to, to do things for him on this earth. Can God really use somebody like me? You don't have to guess because you can go to the pages of Scripture and you can read about when the woman was caught in adultery and, and the crowd of people was surrounding her to stone her and Jesus stepped in between her and the crowd and knelt beside her and said, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. You can read about when Mary was, was weeping outside the tomb after her brother Lazarus died. And Jesus approached her, not with some trite answers about the reason for suffering, but he just held her and wept, shaking with tears. You can read about when the disciples were on the boat and, and the storm was, was tossing the boat to and from, and Jesus stood up and, and commanded the storm with the word of his power, quiet, be still, and then turned to the disciples and, and looked at them with, with the fierceness of a lion and the commanding presence of a king and said, why are you still afraid? And you can read about when the resurrected Christ met Peter on the shore of a lake after Peter had denied him and said, Peter, I, I know that you love me. But now that you finally know that you are a failure, now that you finally know you are helpless and how much in need of my grace that you are, now you're ready to lead my people. When you look at and hear Jesus Christ, you are looking at and hearing God himself. And so now you, you know the answer to that dying soldier's question that was a matter of life and death. What is God like? Is God like Jesus? And the answer is a resounding yes. God is like Jesus. Even more than that, God is Jesus. And if you give your life to him and stop holding on to parts of yourself and follow him with reckless abandon, he will give you fellowship with God and make your joy complete. So let's do that together as we walk through First John this fall. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it seems too good to be true uh, that, that you are like Jesus, that you are Jesus. Uh, we, we can see you in a very real, tangible way, uh, just like the apostles did. We thank you so much for that, and we ask that you will, that you will help us this fall uh, to actually be, to, to be courageous enough and, and helpless and simple enough to, to follow you in every area of life so that we can have complete joy and tell other people about you. It's in the name of Jesus, our most precious and resurrected High King, we pray. Amen.